Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Technology Podcast. Today I have Paul Puey, uh, the CEO, co-founder of AirBits. It's A-I-R-B-I-T-Z dot C-O is the website. And AirBits started out as a, um, a mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Uh, it runs on iOS and Android networks, but uh, it looks like they've been expanding quite a bit in their functionality. So I'm going to let Paul talk about that. But first of all, welcome, Paul. Thanks for coming on the call. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, super appreciate and uh, looking forward to the chat. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, if you first thing, can you expand upon um, just besides being a mobile wallet, what is Airbits into and what is it um, evolving into? Yeah, so our focus on the wallet has been to drive ease of security to Bitcoin digital currencies, give people the experience that they're really used to when they just simply log into a website or log into a mobile application, especially like a you know a PayPal or a Venmo type of application. Give people that user experience, not not requiring people to do things like uh, backup private keys and encrypt files and saving these files or writing things down and putting them in a safe. All of that we fundamentally think is very unfamiliar to the average user. Um, and so we've always built a wallet with the focus of and des- and the uh, design focus and, and value and importance of making things familiar. Familiarity is how we define good user experience, especially in a world of uh, cryptography. So that's been the focus of our wallet, and that's what we've been, been pushing out, refining, and learning over the course of the past two years and in the process of securing easily over you know, millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin transactions. And now what we're seeing is with the advent of blockchain technology, smart contracts, Ethereum, other currencies, Steemit, projects like that, what we're seeing now is that the challenge of securing private keys now is becoming exponentially harder. Because before, you might have one or two Bitcoin wallets, and they were just currencies. Now with blockchain, we've got blockchain applications, and you're now going to have to do this with multiple applications, the entire security and backup process of keys, and becomes hmm. way harder, right? Imagine if we, if, if a handful of the websites that you use every day required private keys to be scribbled down and backed up, uh, you would go nuts. And so what we're now doing is we're taking the same technology and some of the same code that we've developed for our wallet and offering it as a platform for other blockchain applications to give their applications the same user experience that we've given Airbits the mobile wallet with respect to people being able to secure their keys. And so by people just simply creating a regular account feeling, uh, a regular account um, with a username and password and a PIN, people automatically get keys that are encrypted client-side, zero-knowledge, user-controlled, automatically backed up, and then automatically synchronized between the different devices that they would log into. Well, we'll have to get into the details of this because, yeah, you, you just said a lot. So right now, what happens when someone has one or more private keys? What are all the methods that people use in an attempt to secure them? Right. Awesome question. So I've run into a handful of different methods. Um, I think an, an early wallet that I had used was literally putting an unencrypted file on my computer, like early Bitcoin D days. And then that file, effectively, if you lost it, you'd lose your money. 
if you wanted to secure it from malware as well, you'd have to then encrypt it. You'd have to use potentially third-party encryption tools to encrypt the file. And if you lost your computer, you know, you want to make sure you're backed up, so you have to go and take that file and back it up. And in worst right. case, if you added more keys to that file, you have to re-encrypt it and then back it up again and again. And if you wanted to use it on another computer, you have to copy and transfer the file from one computer to another, um, decrypt it, and then offer it to that wallet application. So that's one usage case, which is very challenging to begin with. Um, I've seen also cases where there were PDF files on a phone that needed to get emailed and passwords were created for the user that could have been like 15 random digits long. And the user had to make mm. sure they retained the PDF and they remembered the password. I've seen cases where people, I think the most common now in the crypto world is writing down a like 12 to 24 word random passphrase. That's a very common right. one, especially in Bitcoin wallets. Um, that's probably the most manageable, although many people have, including myself, have lost funds because they write them down and don't know where they've put them because you don't mm. use it on any regular basis. So I have some you know, app coins that I think are on a wallet, which I wrote down and I put it on a piece of paper, put it somewhere, and I'm uh, no clue where it is now. Um, one of the most challenging ones, I think, is the standard in the Ethereum community. And I've demoed to people what this process looks like. And this is very standard, ironically, in the community. And everyone I've demoed this to flips out and says, how do they expect anyone to use this? Which is uh, the creation of a two to three hundred word first. I mean, first you create a password, right? You just say, "Hey, enter a password." Okay. And after entering the password, a two to three hundred random character block of text gets created. And that block of text, okay. based on a website, you're you're asked to save that off somewhere, put it somewhere, and don't ever forget the password. And you can't even change the password. If you want to change the password, you couldn't. So if you want to change it to something that's more memorable, um, no option to do that. Um, right. And that's the one that. I, is more recent, ironically, most challenging and the one that definitely alienates a lot of users. So this is what kind of backing up crypto applications and private keys has felt like uh, to this point. What about uh, cold storage devices? I've seen some USBs and some other stuff. I and mean, what else is out there? Right. So cold storage has the exact same problem, whether it's online or offline. The main thing is that in order to back it up, you've got to you've got to take the key out, put it somewhere else, and so that key looks like a very, very long, intimidating string of numbers, um, that or words. And so really the only way to back up cold storage is to actually, such as a, a hardware wallet, USB keys and whatnot, is to write down 12, 24 words and you put it somewhere what you consider to be safe. I think one of the biggest challenges with this backup model is that backup is nothing more than exactly that. It's a backup, which means you don't ever mm. use it under a normal uh, usage case. So you might put it somewhere safe. Problem is you might not remember where you put it. And the average person in the digital world rarely has to back up anything physical, right? We put right. backups in the cloud and we can reference those with credentials. So this is a new case that definitely breaks the, the paradigm of what we're accustomed to for kind of securing something. And our data has never been so valuable. Like maybe I lost a, a photo in the past or it got broken into and now two people have this photo, no big deal. Now it's actually irreversible anonymous money. And so the hardware solutions, while great for security against an outside attacker, are generally terrible with respect to security against the user themselves, like they are their own worst enemy. And one of the most yeah, common things we hear, there's a total trade-off. And like how often do you change your phone, would you say? Uh, every eight months or a year. Eight months or a year are actually pretty frequent. A lot of people, they're on contracts for like two years. So pretty much every one to two years is when you're going to notice a, um, 
a wave of people losing their Bitcoin because mm. they've written it down, put it somewhere, and then they upgrade their phone, right? They wipe it out, install the application scan, and then their keys aren't on there and they got to restore them. They're like, where the hell did we put that backup? It's about that exact well, amount a, of time that most people lose their phone. I mean, lose their Here's uh, a question for you. Um, what's the actual behavior of people that use Bitcoin frequently? I mean, do they have one private key and they generate a whole bunch of, um, you know, public keys? Or do they, you know, do some people have a new private key for every transaction and they end up with hundreds of them? I mean, what, what do people actually do? Got it, got it. So today, in this day and age, you generally have to back up one private key per wallet. And that private key can generate your many public, uh, that one private key can generate multiple private keys and public addresses. So it's called deterministic wallets, hierarchical deterministic wallets. And that is now a pretty good standard across the ecosystem. So that does, that does make backing up much simpler. However, each wallet potentially with different currencies and with the advent of blockchain applications, each of those end up having to get backed up individually and separately, which creates this very complex kind of exponential the more difficult ecosystem for us to drive adoption for. And so that's that's kind of the challenge that we're definitely trying to solve. What happened with the um the Bitcoin exchanges like Mt. Gox? How did I mean in normal everyday use, besides changing your phone, you know, if someone's hacked or exchanges are hacked or accounts are hacked, so it's the private keys that are being stolen. Is that what happened with the exchanges and what happens with people when they lose their money? Exactly. Exactly. So I'll run through what I consider to be the, the three main causes of Bitcoin loss. And at the very top, by a long margin, by far, the biggest cause of Bitcoin loss is people putting their money in a centralized hosted exchange that controls the private keys. And when you do that, you give that central authority a whole lot of responsibility and you make it a big target for outside mm -hmm. attackers as well as inside. You know, people on the inside now have this huge uh, kind of motivation to go awry. And so that is the biggest loss of Bitcoin. Second to that is people just losing it themselves, simply not backing up their wallet, losing the backup, losing their device that has the only copy of their keys, by far, or losing the password that, that encrypts the keys. By far, that's the second you know, cause of loss. A distant, distant, distant third is people with keys on their own device getting hacked. And so people are worried about Bitcoin hacking what people need to think about with respect to security isn't just how do I make my Bitcoin uber, uber secure, right? Really the thing that they have to ask themselves is, well, what's the likely cause of loss? Because there's always a trade-off. And so at Airbus, we consider protecting people against the most likelihood, most likely attack, which number one is putting their keys on a central server that controls the keys. We want to avoid that. And number two, making, making it such that it's, easier for them to control the keys themselves and more familiar and more forgiving in case they lose their device and so forth. And so the challenge is that what we're, you're probably have heard from people and recommending, Hey, you know, use a paper wallet. That's the most secure. It's totally offline. Like no computers ever, no computer that has access to the internet has ever touched it or use this hardware right. wallet. So in doing that, what, what a lot of advocates and evangelists are doing is they're doing one of two things. They're either scaring the person off because of the, the process needed. They're scaring the person off. And so they just say, you know, I'm just going to leave it on the exchange and leave it to someone else to deal with. I can't deal with this stuff. Or they're getting people to try to do this stuff and causing them to lose their own Bitcoin. So they're driving people to the number one and number two causes of Bitcoin loss 
while trying to solve the third and least likely cause of Bitcoin loss, which is uh, which is actual hacks on end user devices. So that's kind of the irony of what our world is doing right now, and especially the evangelists, mm-hmm. the, the really you know kind of technical early adopters. Okay, and it, mathematically, has anyone figured out a way to um, to recover a private key, or it's not possible? It's not possible. Like with all the energy that can be amassed from all the solar systems in the world, you, there's no way to just guess um, okay. your private key. And so uh, that's the whole reason. Otherwise, if, if you could, then you effectively have an insecure currency. Then other people could take other people's money. So the point is that gotcha. key is what you need to secure, and it is your it is your credential to access your money. So no, it, it mathematically can't just be guessed. All right, so what's what's your solution? What's Airbit's solution? How does it work to solve all these problems? Got it. So we try to, once again, provide people with a very familiar interface. People are used to creating accounts, logging in. And so we mirror that user experience while still giving people full control over their keys. We have no ability to access any of the user's data. But people create an account in Airbit's by just simply creating a username and a password and a four-digit PIN. Um, once they've created the account, keys get created on their device, the private keys. They get encrypted with their credentials, and then they get backed up onto peer-to-peer servers, and they get synchronized between different devices that they can log into. So it feels like just logging into uh, an app, and you can have it on iPad and Android phone, and then it synchronizes between the two. Um, in addition, we've folded in really seamless, the world's easiest two-factor authentication, because we also value that type of security as well, to prevent um, access to their account should someone else in the world gain access to their username and password, they'd be protected against that. And so we still believe in device security in case our device gets, gets hacked. And so uh, we make sure that keys on their device are always encrypted. Right? We never have private keys on their device that aren't encrypted, which is contrary to some wallets. Some wallets don't actually encrypt the keys or they encrypt them with a key that's not secret. Right? It's like putting a key under the mat. It's right there for an attacker to go find. Right. And so we well, how do you, how do you keys encrypt, on device. Um, yeah, how do you encrypt them? How are they recoverable then if they're encrypted? Where is the key for Got that? So, so the key to decrypt is in the user's head, right? That is, that is the key is their credentials. It's the username and password. But how we can recover that is a very unique method that we've been hard at work at for almost over a year, which is a split key mechanism. So much like multisig, so multisig allows people to create these wallets that require two keys to sign in order to spend the money. We've created a somewhat of a multi-key recovery method and split the trust between two entities. So if people go to set up um, password recovery in Airbits, and you do have to set it up, that's one caveat, is that it's not automatically there, they have to set up, and we do recommend that people set it up inside the app. They simply choose two questions, two personal questions, and they you know, put in answers to those personal questions. And afterwards, they send themselves an email. We don't send the email. Airbits doesn't send it. They send it to themselves. They, we, we populate an email with a token in it, and they just click send on their phone. It gets sent right into their email, and they store it in their email. And now, if they ever needed to recover their account, they could just go to that email that they sent themselves, click on a link which launches the app, answer the two questions, and they're back in. And so when I mentioned that this is a split key mechanism, Airbits has no ability to just unlock their data because it requires that email that they send themselves and we don't have access to their email. In addition, it also requires a key that is held on Airbit servers. And the way the user gets access to that key is through uh, an intricate hashing of the, of the answers. So they have to get the answers correct. That gets 
in a way encrypted and then sent over to Airbits. Airbits can verify that the answers are correct and sends back the other half of the key. And so it's when again, once again that split key model uh, where you're splitting the trust across two different parties, enabling people to recover their 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 account and the decryption key instead of using the password. Okay, so if I have um, you know a wallet with Airbits, everything's encrypted. Now I want to go send Bitcoin to someone. What are, what's the mechanism of how I do that? What happens you know on your end that allows me to do that without having to go find my private keys and everything? Right. So ideally, you've already logged, you've already used your account on at least one device, right? You're not uninstalling the app and reinstalling, uninstalling, and reinstalling. So for frequent use, you've right. got the app on your phone, you've created your account. If you're on an iPhone, you launch the app and you touch your finger on the, you know, the touchpad on Touch ID, and then that unlocks your account. You hit the send button, scan a QR code, and then off goes the money. Simple as that. You've authenticated and decrypted your keys, which are stored locally on the device after login. And the secure element on the heart on the iPhone allows us to store a decryption key that will unlock your keys at the touch of your, your thumbprint. Um, and so that's one, one model. Another right. is uh, logging in with your full password. If you wanted to, you could log in with your entire full password. Some people do that because um, they don't want to deal with the thumbprint or the phone doesn't support it. Um, we also provide fast PIN-based login. So that way you just enter a four-digit PIN and that logs into your account. Um, you can do that if you've logged into the device one time before. And the PIN login is similar to the password recovery in that it's a split key mechanism. You know, one key that Airbits holds, one key that's stored on the device, and then the PIN authenticates with our servers so that the user can download the other half of the key. You know, and you combine the two keys, one from Airbits and the one on the device, and that can unlock the account that's sitting on their phone. And so we provide multiple ways of getting into the into the account locally on the phone, depending on what's most convenient and what the device supports. And once you do a transaction, is the local information wiped or re-encrypted or what happens? Uh, the information is re-encrypted after what we call an auto logout time period, right? So the user can set an auto logout time period of like one second all the way up to 60 days. And after that period of time, if the application has been backgrounded, and most people on mobile devices background an app, launch another app, then right. the, um, effectively the keys will get wiped out from memory. And then the only thing sitting there then is the encrypted keys on the disk or on, you know, on storage. So that's, it's something that the user can dial as far as their, their comfort level. We default it to, I believe, one hour. So for one hour, okay. the app will be running in the background. That way, if they want to go and send money again, they don't have to log in again. Um, and so that's, that yes. we find is a good balance. But people can tweak it as they feel fit. All right. And then you talked about, um, besides cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, smart contracts, and all that, honestly, part of the problem that I'm seeing in you know in, in all the interviews I'm doing and in the knowledge out there is it it's just not a a real clear explanation of what a smart contract is, how it works, or how Ethereum works, or how it would be used essentially with your wallet. So it may be a little bit off subject, but can you go into the real, real, real basics of how these other types types of uh, blockchain technologies work and how they interface with your technology and would be used? Got it, got it. So in a way, you could say that, you know, how it started with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin allows people to transfer money, um, send money from this address to another address. But Bitcoin has a little bit of programmability, too. Bitcoin can require specific parameters be met before the money gets sent out. And the simplest version of that is 
the multi-signature addresses, which say, okay, I'm not just going to send money when the wallet owner signs the transaction. I'm going to send it when two people sign or two out of three or three out of five and so forth. Well, what smart contracts allow you to do is to create much more complex programs that effectively restrict the spending of money and give it specific rules and even automate the spending and say, okay, send the money to these addresses once this and this and this has happened. And that smart contract can detect that certain things have happened on the blockchain and trigger based on that. And it can accept many more different keys and signatures and can look at arbitrary data that's written onto the blockchain by a transaction um, that a user might initiate. So think of it as, I don't like to think of them as smart contracts. I think that's a kind of a, a poor misnomer. Number one, they're not contracts. They're just simply programs. Yeah. I think of them as autonomous programs, meaning that they run on their own without a specific computer, a server, a desktop. They run entirely on their own. And once you launch them, that's it. It's out there. Sure. It's in the wild. You can't change it. Right? The only thing you can do is control it via the inputs that it will listen to. So just like every program in the world, it has inputs and it sends outputs, right? Like right. A, a program like Word and Excel, the inputs are what you type on the on your keyboard, and the outputs could be what you see on your screen or a calculation of a bunch of cells and something on your screen shows up. So in the same sense, these quote-unquote smart contracts or autonomous programs, they take input from the blockchain. They look at the transactions that hit on the blockchain. They look at the information that people write to the blockchain. And their outputs are sending money or writing more information onto the blockchain, which also costs money. So there are these autonomous programs that can read inputs, write outputs, and the only way to change them is to send them specific inputs, right? Uh, specific information, right. and trigger them to behave a certain way that, were, that they were pre-programmed to do. So those, those, are, those have to have already been in the program, but to actually change the program, you, so you can't do. They're kind of like hardware. Like once you, once you stamp out a chip, Right, you can't change right. it. And so autonomous programs, I think, is the better term that we should have been using because that's what mm -hmm. they are. They're autonomous. No one controls them. Once they're launched in the wild, they're off they go. So that's what, so what effectively these things are doing. Yeah, you have any simple, real simple examples of some? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the best examples is probably the most exciting application that is soon to be launched on Ethereum, which is Augur. And that's one of our launch partners to integrate our edge security you know, platform. And Augur simply has, it creates smart contracts. It creates these autonomous programs that mm -hmm. listen to people voting or voting on the outcome of an event. And so thousands of people have these Augur tokens called REP. And those people can say yes or no to the outcome of an event or, you know, A, B, C, or D happened, whether it be a, a presidential election, the outcome of the Super Bowl, Super Bowl, or the average rainfall in a country. So someone could put out a prediction, a prediction that goes out onto the network. And that effect, effectively, that prediction is an autonomous program or smart contract. And you can specify how long that prediction will, that market, that prediction market will last for. It could say it goes on until this date. And, it's, and that, that contract will listen for people sending money to it. And when you send money to it, you say, I predict this will happen. Right? I want right. to buy shares in, in an outcome. And other people might buy shares in the, the opposite outcome. And as that right. builds over time, more money gets placed in that market or into that contract. And at the expiration of that contract, other people come in and they report. They report and they say, this is what actually happened. So the contract listens to those reportings right? and aggregates and it sees, well, most people reported that it was outcome A 
and not B, C, and D. And then that contract says, well, who bought shares in A? Well, those people now get the money. Simple as that. Okay, it's so it's like, an automated, you know, it, I see what you mean. It's an automated way of settling agreed upon terms or conditions beforehand. Exactly. And I think the reason why that people call it a contract is because it, it mirrors what you might do with, in a way, if you, not, not like I want to use this term all the time, a big one, but, you know, say you went to a bookie gambling, you went to horse races. Really, every time you give money to you know, the, the ticket, I mean, the, the booth operator at a horse race, you have an kind of understood contract with them, right? There is an understood contract that if this horse wins, you will give me back a certain amount of money based on how many people bet it on this horse. That is a, right. a contract. And this smart contract is quote unquote smart in the sense that it doesn't require, there's no ambiguity in it. Unlike legal contracts, which have a lot of ambiguity, this one is mm -hmm. code, it's computer code, and it's just gonna do exactly what it says, um, what, what it's programmed to do. So that is smart or dumb, depending on how you wanna reference it, but if, if anything, it's autonomous, and it does it on its own, and it can't be modified. So let's say a, a mortgage, a mortgage could be a smart contract. It, it, would, um, it would look to see if a certain amount of money is deposited into a certain account, and if so, it continues. If not, it triggers some other action, like to uh, call the mortgage due or to, you know, that kind well, of thing. Would that be an thing. example? So one of the most, one of the biggest misconceptions of smart contracts is that, is that these blockchain programs can access the real world, and they can't. The only thing they can talk to are blockchains. They can read information from a blockchain, and they can write information to a blockchain. They can't make phone calls. They can't send text messages. They can't look up ESPN, which is the reason why you need like for the sake of Augur, Augur can't go and look up ESPN to see who won a Super Bowl. Can't go to CNN to see who won a presidential election. That's why it needs what are called oracles, which are real people in the real world contributing that information onto the blockchain. So with enough people, then it's, it's, it's fairly decentralized. But if it was just one person, then well, it's, it's just as centralized as if you ran the, okay. the market, the prediction market on a web server. The point is uh, they don't have any access to the real world. You'd have to have someone in the real world or a computer in the real world monitoring the blockchain and taking action on it. And so it'd be like a, a two-step communication, like the, the smart contract would have to write something on the blockchain. Um, a regular computer in circle would have to be reading from it and noticing what it wrote and then communicating to the world, like send a text message or whatnot. But that actually defeats a lot of the benefit of the smart contract to begin with, its autonomous nature if you have to incorporate a single server that, that reads your rights to that smart contract. But you know, there's still many use cases and in the, in the sake of Augur, you're effectively building what could be viewed as like an insurance system, a hedging system that's globally accessible by anyone in the world, um, as long as you've got access to a decent smartphone or small laptop. And that could be pretty powerful if you look at the conditions of like say, someone in Kenya can now buy insurance against a low rainfall if they're a farmer, right? Farmer in Kenya, low, low rainfall, they can effectively buy insurance against it by creating a prediction of low rainfall and then buying shares in that prediction. That's something that's so how do you, um, be done before. How do you prevent corruption of the reporting of the results of an event like rainfall? Correct. Now, that's a very, that's a very uh, challenging thing that the Augur team has built through the Oracle because thousands of people own tokens that allow them to report on the outcome of events, and they're financially incentivized to report the correct outcome. 
because they report the wrong outcome and other people disagree with it, then they actually lose money. And so that's where we bring in the real information from the real world into the blockchain and financially motivate people to say the right thing. It's because they say the wrong thing and other people, you know, go against what they've said, then you have the potential to lose money and lose reputation tokens. So the hope is with that kind of game theory, people just simply report on what they believe is the right thing. If there's ambiguity, then they just simply don't report. Right? Then you've got kind of this stale contract. But for the most part, that fundamentally is the belief um, that will keep the system honest. All right. So I see how we could use multiple people to report on a thing and be incentivized to do so. But what happens if the number of events that require reporting by multiple people grows to the point where there's not enough time or not enough ability for multiple people to report on an event? The interesting thing is that's where the value of the tokens start to increase. So that's where now more people need to get in because there's money to be made in reporting on events. And so um, okay. if there's more events, and, and the main thing is that there needs to be enough liquidity into those events because the money that is made by the re reporters is proportional to the, to the size of that market. So if there's a million dollars worth in a specific prediction, like who will win the election, a small slice of that million dollars gets evenly distributed across the reporting, uh, the reporters. And so they're financially motivated to go and report on that event. Now, if there's a whole lot of other markets that have a million dollar, uh, million dollar value, then those people will be financially motivated to report on all of those. Now, if they don't have the time to do so, then they can sell those tokens on an open exchange where other people can buy them and then report on these other events. So it becomes a balance of, you know, do you want to report it yourself? Or is, it, or, or is the value of your token high enough now that you'd rather just sell the token, make, make profit on the size of, of the increase in value, and let someone else do the reporting? As simple as that. Very interesting. Is there a reputation yeah. component where if you've successfully, you know, honestly reported on X number of events that your token value increases? I don't know that it's necessarily the token value that increases, but I believe the money that you – and don't, don't – Take my word for this one. This is worth looking at in the white paper and communicating with uh, the team at Augur. But um, I believe the reputation builds by virtue of you gaining more of the tokens with successful uh, reporting. Um, but once again, okay. that's some of the intricate uh, game theory that they're building into the platform that's worth kind of asking the key developers and architects versus me. So for we, gotcha. for, from our point of view, we're the security platform for the keys, for the private keys that access this network so that if people do have money that is sitting there on a market that potentially will be returning funds to them that they can easily access those funds via you know, that familiar interface of just logging into the website. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how we connect you to ask also like how do different blockchain projects connect to us? And it's simple. It's in four lines of code. You plug it into a web-based app and you get the full interface that people are familiar with, with, you know, account creation, um, logging with uh, logging in with a username password or a four digit pin uh, password recovery all of that comes after literally like four or five lines of code in their app calling into the Arabits platform uh, which is an SDK that they put into their app so is your goal to um, work with other wallets out there and integrate them into your platform or have them use elements of your platform I mean, it depends what you do, what you call a wallet. I think basic cryptocurrency wallets that are just send and receive 
probably don't have as much of an, a strong interest in integrating with Arabic. Some we've heard some interest in that that's not a zero. Mm -hmm. It's definitely there's some, but I think the ones that are very compelling that really want uh, to integrate are the blockchain applications, like full like smart contract autonomous program applications, because they're solving a pretty hard problem with their smart contract, and most of their dev time is in solving that problem. They don't want to solve the problem of key management. Right? They don't want to have to deal with that because. You know, as a startup, you want to focus on the one thing that you're good at. And so mm -hmm. teams like Augur, and we recently announced a, a partnership with Wings, and they are um, a decentralized autonomous organization or DAO um, platform to create and manage DAOs. And so they have a hard problem to solve as well with what they're building, and they also don't want to deal with key management, which is why they saw immediate value in what we're building at Airbits. So um, from the sake of not so much other wallets wanting to corporate Arabic, it's more like other applica decentralized applications, blockchain apps, dApps, want to use Arabic for their wallet inside of their app. That's probably the, um, a good description of who our gotcha. key customers are. Yeah. All right, so what do you see as the near-term future for Arabic? What are you uh, looking to do in the next couple of years? Um, uh, next couple, okay, near term, gosh, everything moves so quickly. I think near term is in the next couple of months. Uh, the next okay. couple of years, we, <laughs> we see, we definitely see a, a proliferation and maturation, you know, the, the entire blockchain uh, industry maturing and actual applications getting deployed out in the wild, people using them, putting money on them. Um, and we see ourselves powering a, a vast majority of them and creating an ecosystem so that people can have the single sign on experience where. You know, you use your Airbits wallet as an authenticating app where you scan a barcode in Augur or in Wings, and that creates your account or logs into your account. And you don't have to create backups of all the different keys of all the different apps. Right? Everything is under the umbrella Airbits account, all encrypted. Um, no one has access to it other than, the, other than the end user. And so I'd love to see about, you know, a dozen or more um, fully deployed more mature blockchain apps over the course of the next two years, 2017 and 2018, with hundreds of others um, kind of in development that people are excited about is what I would predict for the next couple of years. There's always events that we're not aware of and, you know, could be good, could be bad, right. uh, some challenges in, in some of these smart contract platforms. Um, but that, if I had to predict based on what I've been seeing and I've seen the, the space mature, uh, that's what I would expect and hope to see, you know, about it. Uh, like I said, half a dozen to a dozen good, um, mature applications in the space, and we definitely would like to power most of them. You know, easily 60 okay. to 80 percent of those those apps. So in the you know, I, I thought a couple of years is the near future, but in the couple of years near future, if there's widespread adoption of blockchain applications, what do you think um, someone's day would be like? You know, they, it sounds like they'd have a wallet, you know, an Airbits wallet, and they can transfer, receive money, they could, I mean, what else could they do? What, what do you see as, um, what do you see the role of wallets and private keys becoming for an everyday person? What are like a four or five oh, uses gosh. you see? The great thing is once we put what I call edge secure wallets in people's hands, private keys in people's hands, we now empower a huge swath of, of an ecosystem that hasn't existed before, of kind of private, secure, um, 